This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Very fun episode for you on tap here this week. Longtime friends of the program, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, have returned to the show for another dual guest interview. And I'll be honest with you folks, it is kind of a party atmosphere here on this show. We were laughing our asses off for the first 10 minutes before we even sat down really to start taping the episode and that mood sort of just blends seamlessly into the show. I listened to it over the weekend and was cracking up at all the fun we had during the episode. So I'm looking forward to hearing what folks think of this one because it is definitely a bit off the wall but obviously packed with esoteric information. I mean you can't go wrong with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, two amazing researchers. As noted, this is Marie Jones' third appearance on the show. She was on way back in Season 2 as well as Season 3, and we had Larry on last year for Season 3 around February. So go back and check out those episodes. On this week's show, though, we're going to be talking about the book that they co-wrote, 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. As you'll hear me say when we do the interview, I really enjoyed this book quite a bit. I was skeptical at first. It's all about the esoteric nature of numbers not just the 11-11 thing, but numbers in general and all the different sort of esoteric twists and turns and side roads you can go down when you're talking about numbers in the paranormal scene. And they really did a masterful job of capturing that in the book. Let me roll through a little thumbnail of what we're going to be talking about. Here's just some talking points of uh, what you'll be hearing on the program. We're going to obviously be discussing the 11-11 time prompt phenomenon and how it seems to have burst onto the scene of esoterica in the last few years, where to come from, and really what's driving the 1111 fad, if you will. We're going to hear about the Pythagoreans. We're going to talk about the problems with numerology. We're going to have a really cool side conversation about Y2K and 2012, and that sort of idea of those hot esoteric dates. Everyone's talking about 2012 right now. What's the next date going to be after that? And what's the fallout going to be like post-2012 in the world of Esoterica? We really muse on that topic for quite a bit. You're going to hear about Littleford's Law, Information Theory, Junk DNA, Sacred Geometry, the Kennedy-Lincoln assassination connections, and much, much more. So as you can probably tell, it's not just numbers here on the program. It's all the amazing esoteric aspects that go with it, with two researchers that aren't quick to jump on the booga bandwagon, if you will. Marie is very serious-minded. Larry is, too. I mean, these are some serious, hardcore researchers. They're not pushing some kind of New Age agenda. They're looking at all this stuff from a scientific perspective, but also having quite a bit of fun, as you'll hear, when we start digging into the program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, 
you ought to go back and check out those previous episodes because we are not going to do bios. That's way too much talking for me here at the beginning of the show. Marie, as I said, seasons two and three. Larry back in February of season three. Go back and check those out. You'll hear all about their backgrounds. I will say, though, that you got to check out their new website. They have a joint website that they formed together. 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon is just their first book. They've got tons of stuff coming at you over the next few weeks, months, and chances are probably years. They are a formidable duo. They go by the name of the Para Explorers now, so you can find their info at www.paraexplorers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, paraexplorers.com. Check that out, lots of cool stuff on there. And you can find out what they've got cooking in the Para Explorer kitchen. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June 2nd, 2009. Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman talking about the 1111 time prompt phenomenon and the esoteric nature of numbers on BOA Audio Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Been All of America Audio, and uh, we're still here hanging around in the double guest realm, some big technological 1993-style advancement here for BOA Audio in Season 4, and I'm really excited to bring back two longtime friends of the program. First of all, he was on during Season 3, he's the man behind Our Past, Arkansas Paranormal and Anomalous Studies team, he is Larry Flaxman. Big fan of Larry Flaxman, very scientific approach to the world of ghost hunting, and he's branching into a whole other realm here with his new book, which is co-authored with super longtime friend of the program, making her third appearance on the show. It's not the springtime slash summertime on BOA Audio if Marie Jones is not on the program. That's what I say. <laughs> oh, there you go. There she is. Marie Jones. Everybody who listens to the program knows I'm a huge Marie Jones fan. Larry's going to get jealous if I... If I start praising Marie too much, but, you know, Marie Jones, one of the very best investigators of the world of esoterica today, level-headed, scientifically based, looking for answers in all the right places. So I'm a huge Marie Jones fan, huge oh, Larry. Keep going, keep going. No, no, no. Keep going. <laughs> hey, it's my turn now. <laughs> <laughs> I know, she cut me right off right before I could get to you, Larry. <laughs> He's got to stroke my ego a little bit. Come on. It's only fair. And I must say, Larry is an enormous judge of talent because he's already brought me in as a consultant to our past. <laughs> and even though my only role has been so far to write my own bio. So uh, I appreciate you not making me do anything yet. <laughs> but anyway, we're already, we've been having some laughs here, folks, before you even started taping the show. And I just hope uh, <laughs> the good times can roll on here into the interview. Marie. Larry, welcome to Been All of America Audio. Welcome back to the program. It's great to uh, be reunited with the both of you. It is great to be here with yeah. you. Thanks for having us back. No problem. It's been too long. It's been too long. But as I said, it took me a while to master this 1993 technology <laughs> of the of the three-way call. I guess, you know, you've both been on the show, you know, several times now, and, and uh, we don't need the bio background part. People can check out the episodes where you guys appeared individually on. I guess, you know, what brought... These two superpowers together, what, you know, what created the Jones-Flaxman alliance, and how did you guys end up tackling the 1111 phenomenon? How did we come together? Wow. The sun and the moon and the stars all aligned. No, okay, that didn't really happen. <laughs> um, the way that we actually came about 
to become partners was I was a big fan of Marie's book, Science. I read the book, and I thought, you know, this is really great. This is one of the, the few books that are out there that's not full of shit. Can I say that on the – You can say whatever you want on I, here, I buddy. I did, so. You just right. did. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's one of the few books that are out there that actually took a scientific approach to uh, paranormal. And my field being the paranormal, the book – immediately interested me, read it, uh, thought it was spectacular. I thought, I have got to contact her and run some ideas off of, around her. And actually, I think my first email, if I remember right, was I think I was correcting her about something. Oh, boy. It, it sort of, it didn't really, I wasn't doing it in a way to like, you know, piss her off or anything. It was just kind of like, based on my experience, here's what, what I think. But we just started, we just started emailing back and forth. And, you know, she she's one of the few people that I've I've ever met that, really, especially in this field, is very level-headed, uh, that really does take more of a, a show-me approach, much more so than, than most of the other folks that are out there. It seems like there's so many uh, writers and investigators that, that just take at face value what someone says, and Marie is more of a, you know, prove-it-to-me type person, which, as far as I'm concerned, is, is a valuable trait, especially for someone that's, you know, doing this type of research or that has this type of an interest. So we we talked more and more and more, and I invited her to be a our past consultant, and we kind of just hit it off. I mean, we we were fast friends, and it just it kind of grew from there. I don't even remember honestly, Marie. How did we even get? How did we even get into the whole topic of writing a book together? I mean, I know we were both kind of asked, but how did we even get? Well, to we we talked. You talked about you know wanting to form some kind of alliance, and we so and I said okay. Let's do that. But we really didn't know at the time what that meant. Larry and I had never really had a partner. We've always kind of worked on our own. Larry's had his organization. But, you know, I as a writer, I'd never partnered. I partnered on one book with my dad, but I really, it wasn't something I was ever thinking of doing. And so Larry mentioned, let's form this strategic alliance where we can put our heads together and do some work together. Well, because I was a writer, the only thing that I could think of at the time was, why don't we try to write a book? And I think, um, if I can remember that far back, we came up pretty quickly with a couple of pitches. We and did. one of them was for the resonance key, but it had a different name then. I think we were calling it Parascience. The resonance oh. key is actually the book we have coming out in August. What happened is, we, oh. I went to my publisher with the resonance key. I said, look, there's this guy, Larry Flaxman, head of RPS, blah, blah, blah. Here's his bio. And I'm going to partner with him on some books, and here's our first pitch. Well, the publisher liked the idea, but came back saying, what about this uh, 1111 time prompt? What about yeah. this idea? Why don't you guys look into it? And I remember Larry and I talked on the phone. We were like, what? What yeah. is this? this is, I, no, we don't want to do this. I, I, think, I think our original conversation went something along the lines of <laughs> WTF in the yeah. email. <laughs> Back and forth between the two of us. And, you know, it was really funny because they, the publisher actually approached us about the, the topic. And I've had the experience before, and Marie had the experience before, but we, we didn't think that you know, there was any possibility that we could write a book about something like that. We thought, you know, there is absolutely no way that this is a, a widespread phenomenon. You know, this is just kind of a, a singular annoyance that we both had. We thought, man, this is a stupid idea for a book. Or, or and, that this would be a good article, but that's it. Yeah, You're not going to get a whole book a, out of this. Right. There's no way we could come up with enough material to, you know, fill 200-plus pages for a book. And then, you know, we thought, well, what the hell, let's do it. And we started doing the research, and we're like, holy crap, 
there, there's much more material that's out there than we thought. Absolutely, yeah. I really enjoyed it quite a bit, and I kind of had the same reaction. At first, I was like, 11-11, I don't know. I don't know about this, Flaxman. I don't know what you've been smoking over there in Arkansas, but... <laughs> what did Marie talk you into doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is, I mean, we really had so much resistance to this idea because we had we had really fallen in love with our other idea. We really wanted to push that one. That was the one we wanted to do first, and we really had this resistance. And now, the, the 1111, the book is doing so great. It's yeah. getting so much attention. And the publisher turned right around and bought the resonance key, which, well, Parasigns, which just became the resonance key right afterwards. So not only is Larry introduced into the publishing world with one book, yeah. he does something like nobody else has ever done. He gets like two books fire. in one year. Yeah. I mean, that's never even happened to me. No, so, and now, actually, we've got three. Yeah, it was a total trial by fire for him because he's like coming into this going, okay, Marie, we're going to write a book. Well, what do we do? And boom, we have one contract, and then four months later, we're supposed to turn in a second book. It was amazing. Yeah. I've never had and, that happen. No, and here I am, Tim, with a full-time job. Well, actually, several full-time jobs. Yeah. Thinking, <laughs> oh, this writing stuff is no big deal. You know, I write articles all the time. I write, you know, blurbs for different newsletters and things. No big deal. We could do this. <laughs> I had no idea how much freaking work goes into it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, you had a great teacher here in Marie. Cause, Absolutely. You know, when yeah. when you get a Marie Jones book, you know it's going to be amazingly researched and, uh, you know, thorough as hell and, and, and fascinating, too. And what I really like about this book is it's a lot of fun, which is something you sometimes can't say about a, a paranormal book or an esoteric book. But it's well, really, you know, it's, it's quite enjoyable. It's the kind of book like uh, – well, you know, all adults obviously should read it, but I think, you know, this would be the kind of book that you guys should be putting into high schools or something like that because kids would love this kind of thing. You yeah, know? I think well, it's it, actually gotten picked up for some libraries. Nice. It was actually really important for us to, to add humor and stuff to the oh, book yeah. because mm -hmm. both of us hate math. I mean, I hate math with an absolute passion. Can't stand it. You know, if, if I never have to see numbers beyond balancing my checkbook, I'd be happy. So, you know, to write a book about numbers – Really, you know, you have to add a little bit of humor to it, and you have to add some some character to it, or else it's going to be a boring mathematical textbook. And we didn't want that. We didn't want a book that you know people would pick up, they'd you know buy it, they'd read it, and they'd think, man, this is boring as crap. This is you know this this reminds me of school. We mm -hmm. wanted something that was really exciting, something that somebody would read, and you know that they wouldn't want to put down. Something that between the information, the facts that we were presenting, uh, the humor. The, the the knowledge we wanted something that was kind of an all-encompassing package and you really had to add go above and beyond because of the fact that it was numbers and most people just have no interest in numbers yeah well you know larry and i when we first were plotting out the outline and the chapters we were thinking oh man you know what what are we going to talk about what are we going to write about and yet every chapter in the book is so different, and we found out that numbers can be magical, they're profound, they pretty much describe the fundamental nature of reality, you know, they're sacred, they're divine, they're a part of ancient civilizations, belief systems, all of this stuff that you just don't think about when you're going through your high school math class. And that made it, it became very interesting for us to write the book, whereas, like I said, when we first approached it, we were... We just did not want to do it. <laughs> and now we listen to my publisher because he, believe it or not, uh, Michael Pye, got to give him a shout out. 
came up with the idea that we just find a book for nice. our next book, which will be about deja vu, memory, and anomalies of the mind. And it's stuff that Larry and I have been wanting to write about, but we, you know, we never thought we could really put it all together. And and this is our opportunity. So it, it, sometimes you don't want to listen to your publisher, but every now and then you probably should. <laughs> well, if I had a publisher, I would. <laughs> <laughs> hey, nowadays you can put a book out there. You don't even need a publisher. I right? barely have time Everybody's to do this. Everybody's a writer. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, I love the book. It was really a lot of fun, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, I had the same sort of reservations that you guys did. You know, at first I was like, numbers. Uh, you know, but as you get more into it, you're like, these numbers are pretty damn cool. I kind of yeah. like numbers that, you know, I wish I'd known this stuff when I was in high school. And, you know, it's worth picking up just to win a bunch of bar bets because there's all these cool <laughs> yeah. facts okay. there. Did, did, all the Kennedy-Lincoln stuff. Did, did you do any of this stuff in the end of the book? Did you try any of it? Any of the experiments? Oh, no, dude, I just finished reading the book like two hours ago. <laughs> okay. Like I, oh, I didn't, it really oh, is fresh in your mind. Oh yeah, you got. Oh yeah, you weren't on the line yet when I was telling Marie. I probably read half the book yesterday and half the book uh, today. You know. I, okay. What's on page two hundred and fourteen? I have it on my desk, so. <laughs> I I'll, just want to see how good your memory. Is. <laughs> it's not that good. That's why I have all the dog-eared pages in here. Now everyone thinks you know the listeners are like us just chatting. <laughs> like, what kind of show is this? <laughs> So uh, let's let's do the thumbnail, you know, what is the 11-11 thing and, and overarching that, you know, the time prompts, which is really sort of, you know, the 11-11 is just one of these time prompts. So you know, surprisingly, actually, you know, uh, I think within like the last six months or something, I'd heard from somebody that had no idea what the 11-11 thing was. So mm -hmm. it's like there's still some people out there who don't know what we're talking about. I'll start by saying that... People will say they don't know what the 1111 is, but if you explain to them what a time prompt is, chances are they've had one, maybe a different number sequence. But I've found that to be the case with a lot of people. They'll say, well, what is the deal with 1111? And then you explain, well, a time prompt is simply a, a time or a number sequence that you see over and over again. And they might say, oh, well, you know, I see 333 all the time. It's very common. 1111 seems to be the most common, and, you know, there's a reason for that that we can discuss, but I think everybody's had some kind of synchronistic experience with numbers. Yeah. Larry, why don't you give us a little definition of the 1111 phenomenon? Well, the 1111 phenomenon specifically refers to the time prompt that people experience of the time being exactly 1111. In other words, you look down at your clock, your cell phone, wherever, and you see that it's Exactly, 7-11. And that actually, it's a very legitimate phenomenon. And it's one that, that Marie and myself have experienced many, many times when we've sent emails. And then we don't even pay attention to it. And then Marie will email me and say, hey, did you see the timestamp on that email? And it'll be oh, exactly 11-11. 11-11 is probably the most common time prompt uh, that people have experienced. You know, there, there's a variety of, of explanations, or I should say possible explanations for, for why that is. Uh, but 11.11 is certainly the most um, rememberable of the time prompts, too. Yeah. And that comes from the association with 2012. It because does. Because what we were able, I mean, we were like, well, why 11.11? And where did this come from? And we were able to pinpoint the origin of the whole 11.11 phenomenon as the time that the winter solstice begins on December 21st, 2012, which is the end date of the Mayan long count calendar that everybody's freaking out over. So that seemed to ha be the origin point 
of the 1111 time prompts. Interesting. Now, do we know how long this thing's actually been going on for? Because, you know, well, I have a theory about the 1111. It's a skeptical sort of theory. I guess I'll shoot it by you guys. Maybe you've heard this before, but I feel like it's I, – I'm, I'm of the opinion, I guess, that it is just a coincidence sort of thing. And that's just based on my own little idea here that, that it's sort of like uh, a creation of the digital age. Because, you know, I don't think there was this 11-11 time prompt back when they had the old clocks with the hands on them. Well, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate there. My agent, or our agent, Larry and I, Lisa Hagen, told us one of the um, stories that we were trying to track down when we were looking for anecdotes, that her mother used to attend a group back in the 1970s, a group of women who got together just to discuss the 11-11 time prompts and what they thought it meant. So that was, what, 30 years ago. Now, I haven't heard of anything beyond that, but that's, you know, that's several decades before this real interest in 2012, which is what the reason I see for it increasing. The more people talk about 2012 and 1111, the more you're going to have people experiencing it. But, yeah, 30 years ago, you had people in the 70s having meetings to talk about the spiritual or metaphysical meaning of 11.11. Okay, so you think it's been going on longer than uh, maybe I'm giving it credit for? Uh, yeah, but I think, again, it's definitely increased now. I think the Internet has a lot to do with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you go on, there's 11.11 forums now where you can post your own stories. And then, it, it, you know, like Larry and I found out when we were writing the book, is that you start to have more of these experiences when you pay attention. Yeah. I never had 1111s. I had other time prompts. But as soon as I started writing the book, I began to have 1111s, and so did my son. Interesting. So it just shows you that just by paying attention to something, you increase the possibility of it happening. Absolutely. I remember the, the story there that's in the book, and it was in science about buying a uniquely colored car and how yeah. it turns up yeah. all the time. What do you think of that, Larry, that we're, we're surrounded nowadays by the ubiquitous digital clock, and, and the old clock with the hands is gone, so it's almost like you know we're dealing with almost a modern paranormal phenomenon in, in 11.11. I mean, I even if we it, throw it back to the 70s, it's still within the modern frame. I think so. Yeah, I, th I think it, it certainly could be considered that. Of course, uh, I'm still stuck using a sundial, so I don't, I don't experience 11.11 <laughs> in that way. But, no, I, I do. I think technology definitely has um, has played a part in this as well. You know, as Marie said, you know, there's gobs and gobs of people that are out there discussing the phenomena. There's websites dedicated to it. There's, you know, message forums where people talk about it. And, you know, it, it, technology, I think, has definitely helped to spread the, the word of it or the gospel, I guess you would say, of the, uh, the time prompt phenomena. There you go, the gospel of the 1111. I like that. That's what we should name our triad. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I want to hit on some, some random points in the book that kind of uh, stuck out to me that I found interesting. And uh, hopefully I won't do all of one person's chapters because then uh, it may turn into some kind of power struggle here on yeah, the air. Which yeah, be... and you know those power struggles. The woman always wins, but still they're not fun. Yeah, Larry will get hurt. No one wants that. Yeah, well, like, that's it. <laughs> as Marie sort of said, each of the chapters really is is has its own little story in it, and sort of uh, has a lot of great information in there. And I really like the chapter that just sort of looks at the history of numbers, which was sort of like whoever thinks of these things, but yeah. but you guys did. One thing that really stuck out as kind of strange to me was zero, the number zero, and that it appeared in in countries all around the world around the same time. 
which seems really kind of weird, stood out to me as like, you know, what's going on with that? That's kind of odd. And then in, in twelve twenty nine, the Catholic Church banned the use banned of zero, zero. Can you imagine? Yeah. Which is just like, <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> there is no such thing as nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that they were debating, you know, uh, what is zero and all this other stuff. So I guess talk a little bit about zero, which is often the forgotten number. Well, I mean, if you're going to talk about quantity, you've got to also talk about no quantity. And I think the concept maybe like the 100th monkey, it just spread at the same time. But I think I've got it in here going as far back as ancient Sanskrit. I mean, Babylonians had a concept of zero, ancient Rome. So it's it's almost like it all, everybody at the same time began to think about the concept of zero. And the same thing happened with infinity. It's like the other end of the extreme. Yeah, it is kind of interesting, like, because you do, in the book, you guys talk a lot about, you know, sort of the etherness of, you know, the world and and how ideas can sort of, like, you know, be happening all over the place. It's sort of well, just, right. There's, you know, that interconnectedness and, and the idea that information can be accessed by anybody at any time. And if, uh, you can call it the collective consciousness where a trend occurs or a tipping point, something that spreads very quickly, that it just seems to take hold of all of these civilizations at the same time. And it may also have been that, you know, one civilization began to experiment with this idea of zero, and it just spread in that region, and it just sort of gradually spread out to another civilization and became a part of their religious belief system and, and occurred that way. You know what's funny is that's the chapter we hated to write the most, isn't it, Larry? Yeah, that, chapter two. That, that, that was the worst one. <laughs> you didn't like that chapter? That was one of my favorites. Well, we kind of figured, we kind of thought, you know what, we're going to have to talk about the history of numbers a little bit. We have to. And uh, it was hard to make it interesting and, and fun because, really, you're talking about history of numbers. I mean, how fun can that be? But I think we did a pretty good job. You guys did a great job. I, I'm really into that kind of weird stuff. I was just talking to a guest uh, a couple of weeks ago about the calendar and just how weird it is and, yeah. and that kind of stuff and how people don't really know, you know, the history of the calendar. You know, 90% of people probably don't know, you know, where the calendar came from or anything. Where did it come from? The Gregorians. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I know, really. Just because... <laughs> Oh, why? Is that in the book? No, no I'm just – history is incredibly interesting, but we are so biased against it because of the way we learned about it in school. It became such a functional subject rather than an int interesting, um, intriguing subject that was meant to pique our curiosity. I hated history in high school, but I love history when I read. Well, it's the same with numbers, really, and you guys put numbers in a whole new light here in the book. and. And just so folks aren't confused, just because it's called 1111, the time prompt phenomenon, doesn't mean it's like, you know, 200 and something pages of just 1111. There's a whole host of different, you know, numerical stuff in there, obviously, as we've been talking about. And uh, you get into some scientific theory and stuff like that, some mind-blowing stuff. Yeah. Talk a little bit about Pythagoras and the Pythagoreans, because I found them to be kind of a spooky little crew. Of... <laughs> <laughs> Were you a rapper? <laughs> uh, well, I moonlight, yes. <laughs> I'm the white M&M. I'm the white m and <laughs> Hey, you know what I heard? I heard that whole thing with uh, Bruno was, was staged. Yeah. The whole thing was staged. Yeah, I heard it was staged, too. The more you think about it, though, it's like... I know. I'm totally out of the loop. Who's Bruno? Larry, get with it. what happened to Eminem at the MTV Awards. 
with the Sacha oh, Baron yeah, Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Came down with his naked yeah. butt and Eminem's face. <laughs> yes, I, okay. Well, he was in character. Bruno is a, I think he's an Austrian gay fashion designer that he plays in a movie. Oh, I thought he, like, legitimately got pissed about the whole thing. That's what I thought, too. But, no, today they came out and said it was all staged and Eminem was a good sport and he was in on the whole thing. And this has absolutely nothing to do with Pythagoras, but it just, you know, (laughs) it came up in the course of conversation. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Okay, so Pythagoras was a Greek mathematician. And really one of the most important mystics and scientists and mathematicians that ever lived, philosophers, known as the father of numbers. And he was someone who truly believed that numbers were more than just functional, that they had a symbolic, almost divine meaning. And he was very fascinated with harmonics and the way that numbers are behind music theory. And he really was part of a a whole field of study that influenced everybody at that time and went on to influence Plato and even uh, got all the way up to Einstein and Kepler and just the idea that number was part of reality, that behind all of reality was mathematics. Yeah, what I found really cool and, and sort of weird, this is the spooky part, it was almost like, I don't know if it was like a secret society, but almost just sort of like a little coterie of folks who sat around and, and you know discussed numbers and math and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they did, actually. The Pythagoreans have their own little clique, and that's all they talked about. They philosophized. (laughs) I think back then they had pocket protectors. You think they sat around with their pocket protectors? Well, you know what? I would say, do you think they sat around, like, maybe talking about Star Trek and the the next generation versus the original? But I don't don't think they had that back then. I don't think so, Larry. You think that... Is that how they geeked out, you think, was just sitting around talking about numbers? I think that must have been it, and there was no entertainment, so you just had to go with numbers. They had no video games. entertainment. They had the... uh, Oh, that's true, yeah. They they had the the Greek orgies, and they had the fighting and all that stuff. They had plenty of entertainment. That's true. I didn't even think of that. Every now and then I imagine that they wanted to ponder those deeper questions that nowadays most people don't ponder. (laughs) Do you think they were considered the geeks of their time? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think so, but I think they were kind of respected, too. For They're sort of like how we think of, like, rocket scientists now. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're a mathematician, ooh la la. Uh, ooh. <laughs> oh, numbers, uh, I get it. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of Pythagoras right now, and i got to say, he's a pretty boy. I, <laughs> I could definitely see, you know, people, uh, people being attracted to, to join his little clique. Oh, boy. Folks, Larry's been feisty all night. Huh? He has been. Yes, but Larry, it's my understanding that the men met separately uh, no, 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 from the women. Oh. <laughs> Larry. So the women had their oh. own school, and that there were these inner and outer circles of the school of Pythagorean thoughts. But, you know, we'll never know, will we? That's where the whole, that's not where the whole sheep thing came from, is it? <laughs> Jesus, Larry, you're out of control Mr. tonight. Flax. Now, see, I just, you know, from a scientist's perspective, I'm curious. Do you think, <laughs> that, do you think that they had the? Okay, well, never. Something mind. tells me you've used numbers. that excuse before, Larry. Let's just talk about numbers. Trying to inject <laughs> a little bit of, of interesting dialogue, but okay. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Isn't um, he just the best, huh? He's a wild man. As I said before we started the show, he was so much more innocent when he first appeared on the show. I don't know what you've corrupted him, Marie. I, you know, I just have that influence on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, I 
guess let's talk about uh, the big number three. A lot of different numbers have, you know, serious significance to them and all kinds of things attached to them. But it seemed like the number three was uh, particularly significant in the religious aspects. Talk a little bit about how the three shows up consistently in, uh, you know, all these different religions. To piggyback onto that, just how the Islamic religion seems to be the odd man out on the whole three thing. <laughs> they don't have a trinity. That's basically it. No, the number three is, is it's amazing how you find the concept of a trinity throughout religion. You find it throughout mythology, psychology, science, nature. There seems to be a reality seems to have three different levels. You'll even hear about it in quantum physics where you have people like David Bohm would talk about the three different levels, the implicate, explicate, and superimplicate levels of reality. And and in the Western traditions, you've got the Holy Trinity. Uh, it's just three is everywhere. It's in every major and minor religion. And it's just the idea that, um, well, I, you know, I really don't know where it originated, but out of any number that we researched, we found a lot of really cool stuff about number seven, 13, you know, 666, of course. But three seemed to be the one that had the most associations with being divine or heavenly or important. Again, whether you're talking about religion or mythology or nature. And back to our friend Pythagoras, his little clique considered three to be the noblest of all digits. So, you know, he, he considered three to be the, the, the Mac Daddy of digits. You know, three was also, there were the souls was supposedly split into three parts. Plato uh, said that. Uh, three has always been a very powerful uh, sequence of numbers. Might be one of my favorites <laughs> as far as the as far as the numbers go. Yeah, it's always been mine too. You know, I've never been a big fan of seven, like most people. Oh, you know, lucky seven. But I always felt like three was really important: body, mind, spirit, ego, id, super ego. I mean, you can find triune nature in everything. Yeah, it's like the three is everywhere. Three stooges. I mean, come on, you know? Well, and, and count to three and jump. <laughs> What's count that? Count to three and jump. Count, yeah, count to three and jump. You know, you always say count to three and do something. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like there one, you go, yeah. Yeah, like one, two, three, yeah. Yeah, three's yeah. always like the jump-off point for anything. Right. And look right. at folklore, three little pigs, the three little kittens who lost their mittens, the three billy goats gruff. I mean, why was there always three? It's these numbers, man. They're freaking me out. They are. They're very frightening. <laughs> Wasn't <laughs> um, there just a movie out about that with Nicolas Cage? I think there was, yeah. Like all yeah, this I, you know, I never saw it, that knowing. Yeah, I, apparently that's what it was about. Numbers could predict the end of the world. And... One other thing about the uh, significant numbers that, that was just a throwaway sort of like couple lines in the thing, but I was like, mm -hmm. what? When I read it, <laughs> <laughs> was uh, 666, huge in China. What's that yeah. all about? But it means something good in China. Yeah. I know. It's just so weird. So it just goes to show you that, you know, we, we put our own little superstitious spin on things. What's good for one person is bad for another. And yeah, that's the cool thing in a way about numbers that I didn't realize till I read the book. You know, I just never really wrapped my head around. But, like, the number, obviously it means, like, a certain amount of things. But then also, then it carries a myriad of different meanings and stuff like the number three there's so many different things going on with the number three it's not just three items right it's symbolic i mean numbers have a real functional nature but they also are very symbolic of, of other things exactly now what about this world of numerology I'm, I'm just not really a fan i'm a little bit you know put off by that whole thing especially like 
you guys have a really open-minded look at it, but I think, like, uh, you did a good job of sort of, you know, making it look like it's just too vague almost to uh, uh, science in a way, if you will. Because, like, you know, even if you're doing the whole name thing, it's like, well, do you use your normal name that you use oh, every yeah, day? Exactly. or It's right. like, oh, geez, with the numerology. Is it true that the numbers lady's trying to sue you guys? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you never heard of the numbers lady? The numbers I never lady? heard of it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh my God! She's like the uh, the queen bee of numerology. Oh no, she hasn't contacted us yet. I was just teasing you about this. Those, those are the papers that were handed to me at my door a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> number, but yeah, I mean, name, really? Yeah, Glennis McCants. Huh? Glennis has got your number. Well, I'd like to ask her why I'm both a one and a six. You know, depending on how I use which name I use, my birth name or my common name. I'm a different number. I think with Larry, he came out the same way using his first name and his common name. But, yeah, yeah whatever. And there's different systems that you can use. There's different uh, – some people say you should use um, your married name. Some people say no, the name you, that's on your birth certificate. Well, what if you changed your name legally? I mean, it's like, come on. <laughs> exactly. And I know you guys are just referencing something here in the book, but this is like where it's first sort of stuck with me where you're like – I'm going to read it here. The number 11 is commonly thought to represent visionary ideals, intuition, idealism, revelation, and, and a bunch of other things. And, uh, you know, it just sort of raises the question, like, says who? Exactly. You know, like, who decided what numbers represent these attributes that we use in numerology? Do we know that at all? Well, I don't know that we know who originated the symbolism behind numbers, but I can imagine that every single different religious system is going to think of that number a little bit differently. Yeah. Like the number, you know, 666, we just said in, in Western religious traditions, that's a bad number. But if you go to China, that's something positive. It means that things are going really well for you. Now, I mean, you might want to tattoo that on your forehead. You know, I mean, it's a positive thing. But, and again, if you have the number 11, if you really wanted to get the master numerological number, you would have to add those together and get two. So, which is it? Is it the 11 or is it the 1 plus 1, which equals 2? Which is the master number? And that's always confused me. Yeah, exactly. Now, did you guys come to any sort of conclusion about numerology or are you just sort of like, eh, we'll just leave it as is? Larry, you want to... Well... I, I think we both maybe have a little bit differing opinions. Although, I don't know. You know, really, Marie, we haven't really talked about what we believe about it. Uh, I'm kind of with you, Tim, uh, on the whole thing. I, I, I think that there is certainly a possibility, or I, I would say that I'm open to a possibility of there being some legitimacy to it. But I think there, there's also a huge probability that you're reading more into things really than, than are there. Most of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware even what – I'm sure they know what numerology is. And it, it's basically, for those that are not, um, you're applying some type of a, a mystical or some type of a esoteric relationship between a number and, and a physical object or a living thing. So in other words, like we were saying, you know, a person may have a, a specific number or whatever. I'm not so sure that I buy into it. I really don't. The science behind it just really isn't there. I mean, there hasn't been – a whole lot of uh, research done. It's mostly been anecdotal stuff. I would like to add to that, though, that the concept behind it comes from gematria, from the Kabbalah, from the idea that letters have a corresponding number. But again, it's all symbolic. And whenever you have anything that's symbolic, it's wide open to personal interpretation. Yeah. And that's yeah. where you cannot make a science out of it. It's, it's a mystical thing. It's not 
something that can be understood in a scientific manner. Therefore, it really cannot be called a science. As you say in the book, it's more of a belief system. Yes, it is. And more, you know what? If yeah. it makes people feel good, fine. But I, I, you know, I've had my astrological chart read by a lot of people, and only one out of maybe 20 just completely nailed who I was, and and it was amazing. It was jaw-dropping. You know, the other 19 or so were things that I could have come up with. They were very vague. They were very general. You could kind of apply your personality to the reading. So I don't know. Maybe there are people out there that have a system that really works, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, there's so many different systems. It's like, you know, which one's the right one? And you guys kind of say, you know, or maybe it was even uh, a skeptic in there, too. Uh, it was just sort of, you know, like you'll you'll just... If you find one that you think is right, you're going to stick with that one, and, and <laughs> you'll sort of not even pay any attention to the ones that are wrong if you're if you're like a true believer. You know, the whole idea is that the name that you were given at birth has some kind of meaning. Well, yeah, it does to your parents. Right. What I mean is that they instilled the meaning into that name. You grew up with it. You, you sort of wrapped yourself around that meaning. I never wrapped myself around my name because I was supposed to be named Daphne. So I've always associated myself with a different name. Numerology, when I do readings for Marie, it doesn't resonate. So the intention of your parents probably is more important than focusing on the corresponding number that goes with the letters of your name. You know, I would just as soon go to your parents and say, why the heck did you name me this? You know, what were you thinking? What were you hoping for me? Interesting, yeah. That might actually be more important than, gee, you know, the R goes with the number 22 and this and that. And yeah. So if you're a sixth life path, blame your parents. That's the... Yeah, yeah well, blame your yeah. parents for everything. I mean, we know that, don't yeah. we? <laughs> that's what I do. You know, that that's really making me think now, and I'm, I'm quite upset, and I need to have a discussion with my parents after this, but I should have been named Bond, James Bond. Oh, God. Oh, Larry, we need to put like a laugh track in here on that. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, oh, well, what about the uh... – <laughs> now, Marie, you said that you, you'd heard this story about people like in the 70s talking about it. But when when would you say, you know, the 11-11 thing really exploded? Like, because it's, it's huge now. It, you know, when we were doing our research, it looked like this is something that since the year 2000, since Y2K – has really exploded. Well, there's two thing, two reasons for that that I can think of, and, and we'll see what Larry thinks. One is the Internet. I mean, yeah. you know, everybody's in everybody's business now. You have an idea, it's all over the world two days later. Oh, yeah. The other one is the fact that during Y2K, there was that whole millennium, we're all going to die, end of the world, apocalyptic Armageddon mindset that never happened. Yeah. Now it's being transferred over to the next date which is 2012, you know, the next big date that's on everybody's minds. And I think that has something to do with the fact that more people are experiencing the 1111s because what we found is that there's a whole group of people out there that believe that these are wake-up calls from, they're called way-showers. And, and Larry and I don't necessarily buy into this. This is just one of the theories that we found doing research. There are people that believe that there are messengers, whether you want to call them guides or spirits or angels, that are using the 1111 time prompt to wake people up to the fact that in 2012 they're going to be transformed into a higher level of consciousness and their junk DNA is going to be activated and they're going to become super beings. And this is a theory that a lot of people are, are buying into. And it's accelerating in popularity simply because we're getting closer to 2012. So you add that to the Internet, 
And, you know, we're only going to see more of it, let's put it that way. Absolutely. Larry, what do you think? I agree. I, I completely think that that is probably one of the, the biggest drivers for why it is becoming so popular is because of the Internet and because of people, you know, having easier access to things than they did a couple of years ago. So well, Absolutely. All right. Now, Marie gave me a cool idea here for we'll play a little game. It's only a short game, actually. A prediction contest between Woo! you two. Oh, cool. All right. We have the Y2K thing. 2012, uh, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that probably nothing's going to happen. And it, it, hey, wait, wait a second. Hey, this isn't going to require a calculator, is it? No, no calculator is okay. required. All right. All right. No, all right. but you do have to think, Larry. I, yeah, I know. I thought you had one of those watches that had the calculator on it, Larry. <laughs> oh, he's got no, all no. kinds of toys, and he <laughs> makes toys. He custom designs things. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Bond, James Bond. No. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we had, uh, you can almost kind of look back, and, and maybe you guys would know a little more about this than I would, but, you know, I guess maybe we had like the 1984, that was kind of the year everyone was freaked out about for a while. Oh, yeah. Then it was Y2K. <laughs> right. Then it's 2012. We, we can all kind of figure that 2012, nothing's going to happen, and if something does happen, hopefully, you know. The world will be wiped out, so they don't even have a record of us being wrong. <laughs> yeah, so, a lot of people will be mad at me for saying nothing was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> What's your prediction on what the next big uh, touchstone date will be? Oh, wow. And I have my own now. I thought of one. So. Oh, God, that is a great question. That is a great question. Damn, Tim, you're actually going to make us think. Well, I have a suggestion, and this is just, you know, talking to my dad as a geophysicist. We talk about climate change and all this stuff all the time, and he was saying how we're going to see a lot of, if if the world doesn't end in 2012, which I don't think any of us think it will, um, that the year 2030 is really a um, landmark year for the Earth tipping in one direction or another as far as sustainability. Okay. Uh, now, but I don't think that that means that, you know, there's going to be a, a, a World War Four, nuclear weapons and asteroid nah. impact. But in terms of drastic changes where the human species is going to be challenged, and it may even come sooner. I mean, there's talk of it coming as soon as 2020. But in terms of religions and, and other great dates that you've heard of, I guess the next would have to be the year 3000 because, you know, the Western traditions focus on the millenniums. So I don't know. Larry, what about uh, – can you think of anything? Well, no, of course, if we go by the um, the wisdom of, of the sage Jonas Brothers oh. about the, the song, the year 3000, then – no, okay. They really um, have a song like that? Yeah, they've got a song that, that's the year 3000. That's their, that's their song. I heard Larry, it on the radio Larry, can I ask you a question? No. How do you know that? Well, Google's my friend. We all know well, Larry. Larry's one no, of those ring wearers. I, I, I kind of just, I just kind of Googled it. Okay. Sure, Larry. Okay. No, what? that's not true. I listen to Radio Disney. Okay, there. I just admitted oh, it. Oh, oh, okay. I, they played on Radio Disney. Yeah, Larry has a two-year-old daughter. Oh, okay. Don't, don't think he listens to Radio Disney for himself. Although I question that at times, but I question it too. <laughs> um, you know, actually, okay, let's be serious. The, the 3,000, um, I could sort of see that being a significant thing, but, you know, then again, I was around, as we all were, and I was I was part of a team that was supposed to uh, ensure that the grid didn't go down with the computers when Y2K came around, and of course, it, it was a complete non-event. Right. I wasted, I wasted hours of that I could have been sleeping or partying sitting watching a computer. 
So maybe nothing's going to happen. You know, same thing with 2030 or 3000. Maybe nothing really is going to happen. Maybe it's all in our heads. We, we build ourselves up to, you know, this year something is, this is going to happen in this year. And then maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I really okay, don't. Sure. I, I don't Come have on. any numbers. <laughs> My prediction is just, I feel like 2020 has the ring to it. That yeah. people will latch on to it after 2012 and they'll be like, then all of a sudden all these things, you know, kind of like, sort of like the stuff you guys talk about in the book, you know, all of a sudden people will look around back in history and stuff and find some way of connecting it or the they'll, 2020. There you, go. you know, they'll find some connection with what's going on in the world at the time where they'll say, you know, well, the... The, the thing's going to land on Mars in 2020, and that's when we're going to find out all this. You know what I mean? They'll attach oh, all this exactly. significance well, to yeah, it. Well, yeah, that's exactly what people do is they, they latch on to a date, and then they go look for evidence to back up their belief. Well, you could pick any date and find stuff that's going to happen or that's predicted to happen or that happened 100 years you know, exactly to the day before. I mean, any date is going to have significance. And... Every year from now until 2020, there's going to be amazing things, both positive and negative, that happen. You know, I, I mean, if we're talking about the end of the, the absolute end to all life, I just don't think we're going to be around to see that. Okay, I am going to throw my two cents in here. Yeah, let's go. Uh, all right, 2020. You know, now that I'm kind of thinking about this, and I'm thinking about it from the geek perspective, from the IT perspective at least, there is something called Moore's Law, and Moore's Law basically came from, I don't remember the gentleman's first name, but it was Mr. Moore from the Intel Corporation that came up with this this idea back in the late 60s that technology, specifically chip manufacturing, will progress exponentially basically every four years. <laughs> so our computing power basically doubles every four years, and it's, it's pretty much stayed the same. And I'm kind of getting a little bit off topic, but I'm sort of not. Um, and it, it's we've sort of stuck to that ever since he came out with that. So by 2012, I, I think our our lives will be so much more integrated electronically um, that life probably will be significantly different for us. I mean, between biotechnology, information technology, and nanotechnology, you know, 20 years from now or, or 18 years from now, even 15 years from now, I think there is going to be such significant changes in our life that, Whatever we can come up with now, we can't even foresee possibilities of what's going to be what's right. going to change. I mean, even you know, 20 years ago, would they have had any idea that we would have built this thing called a large halon collider, hadron collider? You know, would, would there have been uh, space travel like we have today? Or you know, they've actually <laughs> iPods. You know, the, the technology of my iPhone. You know, they they couldn't even when computers came out back in the the late 1940s. You know, that was a dream, and now, you know, I've got my, my iPhone has the capability, basically, of a small computer. So, you know, imagine 15 years from now, even, how different life is going to be. Well, and there are people that think that that point, the point of singularity, is going to happen in the next few years, and, and that the whole idea of the time wave theory and the fractal time waves and the, the singularity, I wrote about that in 2013, that that's what 2012 is all about. It's and it that could the information well is going to just increase to the point where it reaches singularity. Not only information, though, but our entire, I think, way of life and how we how we live, how we survive. You know, imagine food production 15 or 20 years from now, or you know, food processing. Our evolution in 15 or 20 years from now. You know, we are becoming so um, focused and so. 
uh, reliant on technology, you know, our physical bodies are probably going to change as well within the next right. 15, 20 years. Yeah. Wow. Maybe that'll be our, our undoing. Technology will overtake humanity. and You need to see Terminator. Go go see Terminator. Why did you see it? Uh, no, no. I've seen all the reviews about it, but that is Oh, is exactly that what it's what about? It, yeah, technology. totally. Sounds well, I mean, scary. you know, technology is a good thing, but at, at some point, doesn't it become dangerous? Is that what you're talking about, Larry? Yeah. you think that's going to well, happen, like, around 2020? Maybe not so much dangerous, but I think that as we become more reliant on technology, you know, we're going to become lazier and lazier as a species. We're well, gonna, yeah, we're that's gonna, already I think happening. Yeah, we're, I'm we're looking lazy. Expect more things to be, you know, provided to us, or or expect more things to be just kind of handed to us without us having to work for them. We're going off track, and I like it though, because I have another off track sort of uh, question here, and and you can both sort of speak to this. I know Marie wrote the 2013 book. Here's something I was thinking of when I was reading 1111, and and, uh, obviously 2012 comes up a lot in the book. On a meta level, do you think 2012 is going to hurt the esoteric community if nothing happens? Sort of how like Y2K. (laughs) Wait. Yes. <laughs> yes, and 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 God, that's a great point, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I am. Well, I don't know. You know, Larry's talking about all these changes that we can expect, and the one thing I was thinking the whole time he was talking is how easily we adapt to it, to the point where we forget what it was like ten years ago. Oh yeah. Somebody reminded me of those cell phones we used to have that looked like. I mean, they were giant. You could kill somebody with them. I did yeah. too. So I don't know. I mean, maybe by 2014, everyone will have forgotten about it and moved on. But I don't know, that, though. I mean, look at like because what really stuck question. with what stuck with me when I was thinking about the question was just like how Y2K and you know before that, you know, being kind of worried about it was a cool was like okay, it was yeah. actually kind of cool for a while, <laughs> and then <laughs> and now it's like this universal punchline for people that believed in anything. And for you know militia groups or something, it's like oh you you're you're still worried about Y2K or something like that. Yeah. So it's like God, you know that's really something I'm gonna have to think about. But yeah, I'm sure it's gonna hurt the people who just were diehard determined to you know that the world is gonna end in a very specific way with an alien invasion or an asteroid impact. But sure, sure. That, I've never thought about that, and I don't think I'll be one of those people because I don't think that I. You know, came from the approach that something like that was going to happen. Oh no! You actually, you know, you sort of like did some damage control ahead of time. I for... know, and you know, people are mad at me because of that. I've actually been excluded from some 2012 events because of that. But I have to bring up Hal Lindsey. You guys know who Hal Lindsey is? Absolutely. He wrote, Larry. Do you remember his book, yeah. The Late yeah. Great Planet Earth? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Well, look at him. I mean, God, the guy predicted all kinds of stuff in every book that never came true, and yet he was still able to sell the next book, another million copies, and go on to write the next one and say, well, sorry, I got everything wrong. This is how it's going to be, and then that didn't come true. I don't know if people just have short memories or they're so desperate to believe that there is this bigger thing that's going to happen that they'll forgive easily when people make a mistake like that. If you think about it, it's like, I mean, I didn't really get into the field until like uh, 2003, so I kind of missed the whole ramp up to Y2K, but I'm sure people were making a lot of crazy predictions and stuff. Can you even remember like any person that made such a crazy prediction that that they were like blackballed from the the esoteric community or anything? I can't think of anybody that's, you know, held up as the 
as the example of someone who really botched Y2K as far as in, in this community. I can't, uh, Larry, can you? I mean, I, no, I, I, I only think of Hal Lindsey, uh, but that's the fundamentalist community. No, but you that's know what? There were, so, there were so many people that were all saying the same thing. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't really recall anybody that was, you know, so far off or, or saying the polar opposite of, you know, there was, there was two extremes. There was either the people saying that Y2K was going to be a non-event or there was people that were saying it was going to be the end of the world. I don't think there was really any kind of uh, offshoots of either one of those that I, that I remember at least. I know. I don't remember much about afterwards there being, you know, I'm sure on David Letterman and the yeah. <laughs> nightly talk shows they really skewered it, but I don't really remember somebody being made to be the – Yeah, it, know, it the, also probably because like Y2K sort of followed the script of the whole computer tie-in thing and all that, right. so it was, it was probably like – but I think it will be interesting to see the fallout of 2012 when it happens and, and you know, but chances are based on the way the paranormal community works, like, you know. It'll be forgotten. Yeah. yeah <laughs> It'll be forgotten they'll, and they'll forgiven. They'll have moved on to something else. They'll, they'll be something new by then. Absolutely, yeah. They'll be like, 2020 is where it's at, you know. Right. We made stuff. a little bit of a mistake in interpreting the Mayan calendar. This one was really a four, you know. I mean, who knows what and, they'll come up with. But Exactly. Now, to jump back into 1111, one number that comes up a lot in the esoteric community is 23. Did you guys find any, like, serious significance to 23, or did you sort of realize or, or, you know, come to the conclusion that maybe, you know, you can do the 23 magic, if you will, uh, with, with any number pretty much and, and find weird coincidences and stuff? I don't think we – we didn't come up with too much. We came up with a little bit more regarding 24, but yeah. 23, it seemed like, was just associated with um, – there was that awful movie with <laughs> Jim Carrey and with the Illuminati Illuminatus trilogy, Robert Anton Wilson, which, you know, was probably the spread of that, giving that number of sort of mythological status. Yeah. But no, I mean, I don't think we came up with much of anything for the number 23. No, just a lot of people that had seen the Jim Carrey movie and wanted to know what the significance was. Yeah. Is seems- that the number that has to do with the pot smokers, Larry? Do you remember? 420. Yeah, I 420? thought it was 422. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it was 420. <laughs> I figured one of you guys would know. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of you wrote the gang slang section? I actually found that. I thought it was cool. Well, Larry's in law enforcement, so he knows the... Really? You know, the, the yeah. what do you call them, police codes. Yeah. And, but that the gangs have their own number codes. They have their own, yeah. The, yeah. The, uh, the gangs have come up with their own. Yeah, I watch a lot of Gangland, that show Gangland, so... I was kind of like, whoa. I think I watched that once, and I, I thought that was just the stupidest show. You like that, Tim? Yeah, well, they do all different gangs, biker gangs, street gangs, yeah. hate groups, all that Ooh. different stuff. But they're all sort of like the same. They're all sort of like, we're the toughest gang right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in Tucson. And now you can kind of tell they're stretching, because they did one that was like the baddest gang in Atlanta. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, what? <laughs> the baddest gang, and what's like a, a retirement community. <laughs> <laughs> Miami. Yeah, Boca Raton. Yeah, there Boca. You go. Yeah, Boca. Um, <laughs> well, one sort of law. Uh, you guys get into all kinds of crazy number stuff here in the book that I'll try not to press you too much on, so we don't overwhelm you here in the evening. But one law thing. I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it. I guess, but it's called Littleford's Law. It comes up a bunch of times in the book, and I found it really interesting and. I think I'm falling into the skeptical rank as far as, as the numbers go, but I'm still sort of blown away just by, as I said earlier, just how many different uh, you know attributes of, of significance you can and put to the numbers, whether or not they're magical in the sense that 
you know, if you put a number eight on your door, you're going to win the lottery or something, but... Right. Brandon, listen carefully. Type in exactly what I tell you. Understand exactly. Nothing else. Four. Eight. Fifteen. What did you just put in? What number did you just put in? Fifteen. Right. Sixteen. Twenty-three. Forty-two. Press execute. What's going to happen? Just push it! You're listening to Banal of America Audio. And that makes tonight Mega Lotto Jackpot Drawing. Four, eight, fifteen, sixteen, and twenty-three with the mega number forty-two. The Littleford's Law, I think, was really interesting. So uh, someone talk about Littleford's Law and tell people what that's all about. It's, uh, yeah, it's actually Littlewood's Law. Oh, whoops. And it's also <laughs> known as the the Law of Truly Large Numbers, which just states that if you have a large enough sampling of uh, a group or people, whatever, that you're bound to get some things that seem synchronistic or miraculous within that sampling. So it's sort of saying that if you have enough people that you're looking at as a group, there's going to be something that happens to one of those people that can be defined as miraculous. Supposedly, according to to the law, a person can be expected to to have a miraculous occurrence uh, every 35 consecutive days. Yeah, right. (laughs) Where's mine? Yeah. Yeah, the guy's definition was like something that's like a one in a million chance. But just because he calls it miraculous doesn't necessarily mean it's good. So, like, maybe, you know, you're driving in your car and a bee will fly down your throat or something crazy yeah, like that. I mean, and just it's something like, that, yeah, like it says, an exceptional event of special significance. So one person's miracle could be another person's curse. Just something unusual happening. And, and it's just, it really takes sort of the magical nature out of numbers by showing that if you have enough a big enough sampling, you're bound to have some things that appear to be quote-unquote paranormal, if you want to say. certain number of people are attacked by sharks like every year or something, so. Right. You know, for that dude, that's his miracle for that month, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. He doesn't get another one for 35 days. Yeah, unfortunately. He's waiting there. No more shark attack for you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Larry. Funny. He's wild. He's a wild. You know, I have to say that I want to say this that this is the reason why we became partners. We think and talk about so much serious stuff. I mean, the kind of stuff that we write about what? in research, it's very what? heady, it's very serious. But we have such a good time doing it. And I you know, that's something that you don't find with everybody in this field. People are either too serious or they don't know what oh, they're wow. doing. Oh, good. I, I thought you were about to say that I was like all serious and I was just playing on the radio tonight. And- no, okay. no, no, I really wanted to say that because people might be listening to this and thinking, oh, you know, what a bunch of goofballs. But the thing is, is we have the ability to get real serious when we need to, but we have fun doing it. Otherwise, what's the point? Exactly. And you guys know me well, and you've been on the show a bunch of times, so it's Absolutely. not like, yeah. you know, it's not like you're trying to make a good impression for me. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I, I've met Marie. I've dined with Marie Jones, folks. It is he an experience. Has. He saw me. Didn't I have a beer or a couple of beers? Yeah. I had quite yeah. a few beers, to be you honest did. with you. you did. I had a great time, though. That was fun. you got to come back. <laughs> it was, yeah, maybe not this year, but I am going to be heading out there at some point uh, next year, I think. Well, I'm trying to get Larry out here, you know? Oh, Dude. boy. Larry, you seem kind of pasty. Can you handle the San Diego sun? 
<laughs> Dude, I am like the farthest thing from pasty. I am so red and burned right now. It is just incredible. <laughs> Are you really? Oh, hell yeah. We went down. I, t- I told you what we did last weekend, right? Oh, yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, well, you want to know, Tim? Yeah, all right. Oh, cool. Let's hear it. Now we're already cool. off topic. All right, well, for those that don't know, Arkansas has the only publicly available diamond mine in the state. So we went diamond mining two weeks ago. We went, we went and checked that out. It was completely lame. Nothing happened other than we got rained on a little bit. But this last weekend, we decided we were going to do a little bit more mining, and we were going to go to a city called Mount Ida, Arkansas. Mount Ida, Arkansas, for those of a more metaphysical bent of your listeners, is known as the crystal capital of the world. Mm-hmm. So we dug for crystals, and I ended up with about two bucketfuls of pure quartz clear crystals. And You know, I'm not like a huge metaphysical freak, but I do believe that, that crystals do have I mean, they have piezoelectric properties, if nothing else. I mean, back in the day, watches were made with uh, piezoelectric crystals, which is basically a quartz crystal. So, uh, there, you know, there's the ability to to uh, create slash conduct electricity. Well, so anyways, so we went digging last weekend. It was uh, uh, myself, my, my daughter, and my wife. And, of course, my, my daughter, she's two and a half, and she didn't <laughs> dig. She found a, a mud puddle, a gigantic <laughs> mud puddle, and decided to just, you know, go for that. But... So I take my shirt off and I'm out there just digging away and not even thinking about, you know, just thinking, man, I'm going to get like the best tan being out here. It's just nothing. Oh, no, Larry. Shirt. Yeah. So my entire back is peeling, but the front of me looks like a skeleton. So, you know, from, from being bent over, the whole front of me was protected, but my whole backside is just, it's just raw. Tim, in Arkansas, I guess they don't have sunscreen. <laughs> no, so I, I am, right now, I am the prototypical Arkansas redneck. My neck is, like, completely red. You're a literal redneck now. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely. <laughs> now, <laughs> and as, I'm, as I was hauling out one of the buckets of crystal, I had a guy come up to me and go, you got a real pretty mouth, boy. <gasps> oh, Jesus. No. Okay, no, I really didn't. But Larry. <laughs> this guy's a wild he's child. Really he is. I'm I mean, telling you. It's a beautiful place, but it is literally, it's out there. There's yeah. really a little, a, a little backwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's some family trees there that probably don't fork, and yeah, it was, but it was cool. We had a good time. Definitely want to go back. Nice, nice. All right. Well, that was a good little side story for folks Wasn't to it? enjoy. Yeah. Uh, now, whose idea was it to put the uh, the Lincoln Kennedy connections in? Because I loved that. That was like a bonus treat in the book, where you know I'm going through the index, or the uh, the appendix part, and I was like, what is this? This is awesome. I think we both kind of, or I don't know. I think Larry found it, and we both thought, yeah, that's. You know, that's synchronicities and coincidences, and I mean, it's just something you can't ignore. There's just too many coincidences there. What do you make of those coincidences between the Lincoln Kennedy thing? These synchronicities, you History guys do a good job itself. of. What's that? <laughs> History repeats itself. Exactly. But... Like you guys do a great job of sort of doing the pros and cons of synchronicities, and those are definitely something that I'm sort of like on the fence about. I, I really can't really wrap my mind around synchronicities and, and why they happen. For starters, I guess, what do you make of the whole Lincoln-Kennedy thing? Is it just sort of, you know, we found the connections just because we were looking for them and they were two tragic events in America's history. So, I mean, has anyone done like a Pearl Harbor 9-11 thing? That would be interesting to see if there was a Gosh, connection that there. that sounds interesting. Somebody should do – well, I know there are some similarities, but I don't know. I'm just going to throw this out. We'll see what Larry thinks. But I do think that history repeats itself, and I think that there is a deeper level of reality where – past, present, and future all exist at the same time. There's no linear time. And patterns that are created could, of course, 
appear again. And maybe this was one of those instances where a pattern repeated itself, you know, a hundred, hundreds of years later in another human form. I just, I don't know. I don't put it all off as just being pure coincidence. There's too much of it. Yeah. And I do believe, and this is not a metaphysical belief, this is pure physics, that there is a, an interconnectedness to everything. We don't see it, but it's there. And so whatever goes on on that level, we, we don't see the causes, but we see the effects on this side, and we wonder where they came from, and oh my God, they look like synchronicities, and they look like miracles, and how can that possibly be? But we're not able to see where the causes are. They're occurring on a whole different level of reality. Larry? I agree, um, but let me just throw this this in because you just asked this a second ago and I Googled it and I wanted to see. There actually is a website I'm looking at right now that compares and contrasts Pearl Harbor versus 9-11. And it's actually really interesting. I'm just kind of skipping through this whole thing. Uh, it's not so much just specifically about numbers, but it's actually about the comparisons between uh, some of the the logistics of, of both of the events. So someone actually has done that research. <laughs> See, but, there's always uh, somebody. But going back to what we were talking about, I agree with Marie. Um, a part of me thinks that, you know, a lot of it could certainly be attributed to just just luck, that you could basically be interpreting anything the way that you want it interpreted. But there is also, you know, the rational side of me that's saying, well, there's too many of these so-called coincidences for them to be statistically insignificant. In other words, there has to be some sort of of, of a uh, of a pattern that's occurring, and and why is really what what I would be more interested in. So, I think it's there's probably something to it. There there probably is. I think we we tend as a a species probably to rely a little bit more than we need to on um, reading things into and patternization of things. But you know. Yeah, I think there's a possibility. I, I think it could be there could be something to it. It, it would need uh, more s- stringent uh, scientific study, but I think I think that the possibility is there. And it sort of raises one of the big issues that you guys kind of bring up in the book. Even if we can find all these connections between the numbers and significances in you know oddities of numbers, at the end of the day, we still struggle with the big question of like why. You know, how did these connections come about? Who made them? Who, right. who designed that blueprint or that master plan that links everything together? Exactly. Or what? Maybe not who so much, but or it what? could also be exactly. what. Indeed, because that kind of goes right into uh, Marie's wheelhouse, which is the information theory behind the whole universe and all that stuff. Is God a computer? That kind of thing. I recognize that from science as well, and it was also here in the 11.11 book. I know that's one of... Marie's uh, favorite subjects, I believe. I think there's something to it. it. I mean, everything boils down to information. Every Everything that we see, matter, energy, it's all about information. But it begs the question, you know, if it is, if the universe does behave like some kind of great giant quantum computer, there has to be someone, or as Larry said, something that programs it. And that's where the whole idea of intelligent design steps in. I mean, unfortunately, religions have taken the phrase intelligent design and really turned it into something negative. But could we possibly be dealing with some kind of master architect or master mathematician that is behind all of the interconnectedness and and all of the the numbers that are behind uh, how the cosmos came about and all of the information that we see and perceive and process, 
it does make you think, could this all be totally random? I don't buy that. I mean, that's harder for me to buy than that there is some conscious intelligence behind everything. I just have a really hard time accepting that all of this perfection and precision and the intricacy of life is just came out of randomness. It's just, hey, you know, whatever, it just happened. Yeah, it does seem like, you know, there's too many coincidences. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. To really say, you know, it just sort of happened by accident. Sort of like you guys have a, a part in there that you quote from some, I don't know, some egghead's book. <laughs> 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 Saying that, uh, you know, the universe can be boiled down to like six numbers. Exactly. And... Yes, Sir Martin Reese. I'm yes. a huge fan of his work. And it's just amazing that... Math is the language of the universe. That if each one of these little things had been, uh, you know, a tiny bit different or something like that. It would not have worked. We yeah. wouldn't be here. And that, again, makes you think, well, there's got to be an intelligence behind it. But, you know, when we say the word intelligence, people automatically think of it as being human. And that's just arrogance. It doesn't have to be a human form of intelligence. Or an extraterrestrial I think a lot of people probably would think that as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It could be something we have yet to even fathom. Yeah. Yeah, it'll probably turn out to be something like that. or it'll, It could be something totally mundane. Wouldn't <laughs> that be awful? Yeah, they'll come up with some kind of equation that explains what God is, and it'll be like, God is yeah. this long equation. The right. People will be like, what? <laughs> then they'll like attack the scientist pretty much. That... He'll, yeah, he'll he'll die. and Conspiracy! <laughs> <laughs> Now, when people see this 1111, are you supposed to do anything or, you know, hop on one foot or, you know, recite the alphabet or anything like that? or Buy or... a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Oh, gosh. That was that was a real big part of, you know, why we wanted to talk to people that had the experiences. Some people, as Larry will tell you, thought that it was just an annoyance and it didn't mean anything. and It was just kind of a pain in the ass, something that kept happening. And other people really felt like it was waking them up to something, whether it was a situation they were facing in their lives or just to be more awake and aware and in the present moment. Um, I don't necessarily think that you have to do anything when you have a time prompt except pay attention. It could be whether it's some external influence or your brain, something is trying to tell you to pay attention, and it would probably be a good idea to do so and just kind of see what happens. Larry, what say you? I'd say the same thing. I mean, really, there's not a whole lot you can do anyways. I mean, you know, when you see it on your clock, I mean, if you're driving, I mean, please don't slam your brakes on and (laughs) do anything like that. I mean, really, there's there's nothing you can do. I mean, for for most people, especially me, uh, it it really is an annoyance. I mean, to me, there's really – I don't read a whole lot of significance into it. But, again, that comes back to what we talked about previously, that – a lot of this stuff is open to individual interpretation. So just because you see it, and I do agree that you should be cognizant of it, you should be aware that you're seeing it, and there probably is a reason why you're seeing it, I wouldn't overanalyze it. And I, I, really, there, there's nothing that I would do. I mean, I wouldn't go see my local rabbi. I wouldn't go, you know, visit the, the local psychic and, you know, hey, I'm seeing 11 what does it mean? I, I don't think I would do anything. I would just be aware of the fact that I'm seeing it. And maybe that's that's all that this might be, yeah. the fact that you just need to be aware and nothing else. I mean, stop putting makeup on while you're driving. Get off the damn cell phone. You know, just pay attention. Larry and I have talked about how when you do that, 
that's, you know, when you're more aware, when you're more in the present moment, that's when you start noticing synchronicities. That's when you start noticing opportunities that you might not have noticed because you were upset about something that happened a week ago or, right. you know, and dwelling. I think also when you're in that, I mean, I guess you could call that being in the zone, things happen. I mean, yeah. when when you are in a, a state like that, things happen. I mean, we're a perfect example of that with our books. I mean, you, things happen when, when you are in that receptive state, when you're aware of things. Things just naturally occur. Absolutely. I will say, though, I do find a little bit frustrating some of the people that take it a little too far. Oh, absolutely. There are so, and, and Tim, you know this with, with the paranormal community especially. I mean, there, there are people that, that, you know, take, take things to, to a extreme that shouldn't be. I mean, people oh, yeah. overthink things and overanalyze things many times. Hell, I'm guilty of that. Half the time I, I tend to overanalyze things. And that's, I think that's just the way we are as a, as a, as a species. I mean, that's, that's ensured our survival. We, we need to, we think about things probably too much. Yeah, you know the people I'm talking about. Well, yeah, there's a lot of people in the paranormal and the metaphysical communities that seem to want to find symbolism in everything, or they're looking for meaning in everything from, oh, you know, I just accidentally stapled this paper twice instead of once, and what does that mean? I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, a lot of this is very intuitive. You know when something is important. You just intuitively know when you should be paying attention to something. The problem is, is again, we're so focused on just the information that we're bombarded with in our day-to-day lives that we don't always pay attention to those little inklings that, gee, you know, maybe I should call this person. Uh, and then you don't call them, and you find out right. two weeks later that had you called them, they would have offered you the job of a lifetime. And yep. so, But it's the people that over... They, you know, they overdo it with trying to find meaning in everything that are, they're just as bad as the people that totally ignore every intuition and every synchronicity and they never see the opportunities that are right in front of them. Absolutely. We hate them both. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we hate no one. I know. I know. We spit upon them. (laughs) There you go. That's more appropriate. (laughs) Um. Now, now you guys do uh, talk quite a bit about the junk DNA thing, and, and uh, I try to follow that peripherally, but it delves almost – I don't mean your book. I just mean, like, the the whole story right. of junk DNA sort of, like, gets so scientific that my brain shuts off after a while. But, uh, you know, what, what's the story with junk DNA? Are we finding out some more information on, you know, what's in there? You, you have some stuff in the book about – there being like a language or something along those lines in the junk DNA, which was like crazy talk, but apparently it's been, you know, unearthed by scientists and stuff, not, you know, Sean David Morton or something. So what, you know, what is, uh, you know, what what's going on with junk DNA? What's the latest? What's the skinny on that? I think when we were writing the book, or maybe after we had turned it in, and I think these articles may have made it into the resonance camp, I'm trying to remember, uh, there was a whole bunch of research that came out about how some of the quote-unquote junk DNA, they now know it's part of our uh, metabolic system and it has certain right. functions with hormones and this and that. So it's referred to as junk DNA because it's we don't know what it does. And whenever scientists don't know the answer to something, they call it junk. I mean, that's just one of their things. Yeah. Junk science, junk DNA, whatever. Um, but obviously it has. A use. I can't imagine that whatever made us would make something that's useless. Why is it even there to begin with? 
So it seems to me that we're just now starting to find out that the stuff we thought of as junk is actually very important to the human body's functioning. But, you know, in terms of the time prompts and, and 2012, there's the theory that within that junk DNA, we're going to find out that we are going to have the ability to become super conscious super beings when some of that DNA is finally coded and we figure out what it does, it's going to have something to do with consciousness. And we're not going to know that until it actually happens. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Larry? Well, I don't think there is such a thing really as junk DNA. As Marie said, I think that you know the, the human body is such a finely tuned machine that whoever or whatever created us, I, I don't think that they, they put any type of... Um, additional spare parts in us that are not being used. Uh, some of the, the theories that are out there about, about junk DNA, and junk DNA is really, it's really kind of a misnomer. Um, as Marie had mentioned, scientists basically call any type of DNA that they currently don't understand the function of DNA, as junk DNA. So just because they don't understand what it does, they call it junk DNA. Or it may not uh, seem to have uh, some type of a, a function, they call it junk DNA. But it really may not be. But one of the theories is that the junk DNA is actually leftover stuff from our evolution. Um, and that as, as we've progressed as a species, as we've evolved as a species, uh, that some of the, the, uh, the DNA sequences that we have are, are not applicable to, to our current uh, uses. I, I don't necessarily buy into that as well either. Um, from all of the research that I've read, um, the, and this is probably going to go way out there, but our evolutionary track, I don't think, is, is is quite as linear as people think that it is. In other words, you know, there, there's theories obviously out there about, you know, we've, we've descended from simple uh, protozoans and then we then became two-celled zygotes or whatever, and then we became monkeys. In other words, we've progressed uh, along an evolutionary path, and I'm not so sure that I completely buy into that which is kind of a uh, an interesting thing as, as being a scientist, you know, kind of going against the grain. But I, I don't necessarily believe completely in, in, in that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that the what we're considering junk DNA probably has an alternate function. We, we, again, probably don't understand what that function is, but I don't think we have that in us just, you know, for the hell of it. I think there is a function to it. It's either not activated yet or it was activated at one time, and now it's, it's waiting, perhaps dormant, for another uh, event to occur. Um, or we just haven't figured out exactly, you know, what it does. Maybe it does stuff, we just don't know what it's doing right now. Exactly, like the vestigial tail. Right. Yeah, very much. Yeah. Yeah. That needs to make a comeback. <laughs> or, why, or why men have nipples. That's another one. Yeah, really. That's such a waste. <laughs> <laughs> What a waste of a perfectly good nipple. Yeah, but Larry brought up a good point. It could, you know, it could be that some of that junk DNA we no longer need, but some Absolutely. of it could be that we ha haven't needed it yet. That's right, interesting. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, Maria, as we've talked kind of a little bit on email, you know, maybe the whole 2012 thing is some sort of an activation process for some of that junk DNA. Right. You know, maybe the actual, as we move our, our shift our consciousness, our focus on consciousness toward the year 2012, you know, maybe, you know, our, our genes are starting to activate, they're starting to rumble and grumble, and they're starting to, you know, kick into place, and then 2012 comes around, you know, and I'm not saying I believe this, I'm saying this is a possibility, uh, you know, that 
something happens, our all that stuff kicks in, and we we become ascended beings. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen with it? What's up with this golden ratio thing that's all around in science and stuff and weird shells and things? That's just so weird. Well, it's just another example of how nature operates in patterns and, and precision, and it's all mathematical-based, and it's something that you see in science and art and architecture. Sacred geometry relies on it because it has it symbolizes the divine ratio. The human body. Now that raises a point, actually, a good question here. You guys do talk a lot about the sacred geometry stuff in the book. Now, do you think there's a lot of talk, you know, that the Freemasons and stuff and, and the Knights Templar and stuff, they had all these secrets of geometry and stuff. Do you think that now in modern times that we kind of know all those secrets, that they're not really such big secrets anymore? Because, like, you know, it's been like four or five hundred years or whatever since they held on to the secrets that were. You know, now we kind of look at them and we're like, oh, yeah, dude, that's pie. <laughs> God, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't think we do know them all. I think some of them just got lost uh, yeah. in in progress and the, the thrust of technology made the need to know some of those things obsolete. Or at least we think that it's obsolete. We don't realize that we really do need to know those things. I think a lot of the mysteries have been brushed aside by our quest to become more progressive technologically, and I think that's that's sad. I mean, look at how we build buildings now. It's all functionality, you know, space, money. How many condos can you cram into a, you know, a, a small lot rather than thousands of years ago where they actually built something in accordance to how the stars lined up or where the energy was coming from in the earth. And I mean, so much more thought and reverence went into it, and now it's just all about money and function and, and economy. Oh, but geometric, I mean, the geometric forms, really, that are associated with sacred geometry, they're, they're still in play today. I mean, we, we still see that on a daily basis. Hell, I, I ate one this morning, the Taurus. I ate a donut, you know, <laughs> the Taurus shape. Um, <laughs> Was that your breakfast? Yeah, that well, was my we, breakfast, but, yeah. But so, I mean, fine the... waves. You don't have the appreciation, though. Of, we don't. We've lost the appreciation. Yeah, we've we lost also, the magical quality or the, the profound part of it is gone. We don't respect. We, we, and no, we don't. And we don't build structures like we used to. I mean, you know, look at the pyramids, you know. There's no structures like that that are modern-day buildings. I mean, we don't. We've lost that. I wouldn't even say we've lost that need to have that, but it's almost like we've lost that desire more so, perhaps. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, it's really uh, it's weird when you think about it, because like, like kind of what we were saying about the Pythagoreans, you know, I mean, this was a big-time thing to them, and now it's this stuff's really kind of getting marginalized, unless people pick up 11-11, the time prompt phenomenon. There you go. Focus has shifted from, from the magical to the very mundane. I mean, we live in a very mundane world, I hate to say it. And those of us that are involved in this kind of research are the ones that are trying to hang on to the magic because we know it's there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just an aside here, Larry, now I know you were into the ghost realm. How'd you end up sort of getting into the 1111 stuff and and sort of, you know, off the beaten path of of the ghost stuff? Because I know Marie is... She's a Renaissance woman in the paranormal world. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she um, could, well, she's amazing. So we, I'm not surprised that Marie could write an 1111 book. And I'm not, obviously, I'm not surprised that, that you could either. I'm surprised that you did, is the way to say it, because, you know, uh, I always associate you with, with the ghost phenomenon. So how, how did, you know, how did you as a I researcher? I think it's all, I think it's all kind of related. 
you know, as far as I'm concerned, anything that's unknown, I've always been interested in that, anything that, that's kind of an unknown or something that's, you know, maybe not traditionally understood really has, has always fascinated me. And I think there is a lot of tie-in between ghost stuff and this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, obviously the two phenomena are, are not identical, but as far as, you know, not having answers about the two things, I mean, there's a lot of crossover between the two. So I don't even really know how to how to answer that other than to say that it's, it, it, it interests me, the ghost phenomena, as much as it does the 11-11 phenomena and the UFO phenomena and the Bigfoot phenomena and all that stuff. You know, I could see myself really writing about any of those things just because I'm I'm such a student of Fortean knowledge that, you know, I'm really, I don't want to label myself as a ghost hunter or label myself to that specific clique because that's, I, I'm much more um, three-dimensional than just that. I mean, that, that just happens to be what I've chosen to focus on with my organization. But as far as my personal interest, you know, I've, I've been interested in, in this type of stuff much, much longer than I have being a ghost hunter. Nice. Well, I think that's why this partnership really came about because Larry has a very specific charter with our past, and they do very specific things. And our partnership allowed us to create Pair Explorers, which was like everything else. Right. You know, we just we have so many interests that are really on the fringe, and even cutting edge science and things that even go beyond that. But because they didn't fall within the charter of our past, we found this new outlet that we could write about whatever we wanted and not be, uh, you know, not have to sort of keep ourselves in the same genre. Yeah. Now, have you gotten any trouble from the ghosties over there in the ghost community, Larry? Are they like, he's turned his back on us. He's into the no, actually, No, actually, no. I'm speaking at a conference, uh, not this weekend, but the next weekend uh, in, in Oklahoma for another TAPS group, and I'm talking about the 11-11 phenomena. They didn't even ask me to talk about ghost stuff this year. They wanted me to talk specifically about 11-11. So, no, I, I don't think so at all. We're trash-setters. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, you know, obviously, like you said, you know, people initially probably will associate me with our past and that stuff, too. But um, I think a lot of people that are that are of the same mindset as us, probably not everyone because there is a, a bunch of people in this field that are, uh, probably in it for the wrong reasons, but I, I think the people, for the most part, yeah. that are interested in this for the, for the reasons that we are, for the, the true knowledge-seeking aspects of it, I, I think probably can speak to the same thing, that, you know, multifaceted, being able to cross the boundaries and, you know, speak as intelligently about one phenomena as another. Absolutely. I'm in this for the money, the fame, and the women, so. Yeah, there you go. How's that working for you? Not too well. <laughs> not, yeah, yeah, it, has, it not, hasn't worked for me. It's yeah, working for money. me. <laughs> <laughs> the women and the men. Well, okay, never mind. Yeah, we won't even – let's not go there. But, you know, it, I found people, too, that they're so limited. It's like they have blinders on. They're only interested in one thing, and I don't know how you can live your life that way. I mean, the world is so full of mysteries. Why focus 100% of your time and energy on just one? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, and he was like – you're not even doing UFOs on the show anymore. And I, I, and I looked and I was like, you know, I've barely done a UFO show like all year. It's just there's so much other stuff out there in the esoteric right, community right. that this season especially has been a lot of sort of fringe elements to the whole field. You know, the 11-11 thing. We had shadow people, a whole bunch of different stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's fallen through the cracks that 
people sort of forget about because they get wrapped up in ghosts, UFOs, 9-11, and conspiracies. Exactly. Because that's the stuff they see on TV. You know, they jump on the bandwagon. They forget there's a whole lot of other wagons out there. <laughs> I, don't, I, I wanted to have a, a witty response to that, but I couldn't come up with one <laughs> fast enough. Did I flummox you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is, uh, what is this Para Explorers crew that you guys got going on? I'm going to call up the URL right now as I ask you, but, you know, uh, of course, paraexplorers.com, pretty simple, paraexplorers, all one word, .com. What, what, what is this organization? It's it's our our shadow organization that we've created to do nefarious tasks yes. like take over the world. Yeah, we we definitely are taking over the world. <laughs> wow. You know, when we decided to become partners, we thought we really wanted to brand ourselves as a team and what we're doing, the kind of writing and research that we're doing, and we plan on really expanding it quite a bit. If we could ever stop writing books. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I mean, I've been writing all my life, and I've been writing books for quite a while, but what's happened to us has been really freaky in terms of publishing. We have gotten books picked up, you know, one right after the other, and we would always say, well, okay, after 11-11, we're going to take a break, and we're going to do this, and then, no, we got Resonance Key, and then we said, after Resonance Key, let's take a break and focus on this, and then, boom, we got this Deja Vu book, and so if we could ever stop writing books... (laughs) We yeah. can build the rest of our empire, but it's just <laughs> a way for us to really put out there the information that we want people to know about. Nice, nice. Larry, your thoughts? Parastores was really our way of, of creating an, an umbrella that we could uh, investigate and research uh, multiple things. Being somewhat outside of the, the uh, forte of our past, we wanted something that you know, would allow us to investigate UFOs and Bigfoots and, you know, things that really fall outside the charter of our past, but yet at the same time be able to uh, call upon our past resources, i.e. equipment, personnel, things like that. Consultants. With, Consultants. Yeah. <laughs> with Marie and I being at the helm, being able to kind of uh, steer the ship, I guess you would you would say. So it's kind of a it, – it's a it's – a, very engaging, potentially huge project that we're that we're doing. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, it sounds cool, and the website's neat. I just went to it, and it's it's pretty cool. What do you got on there? All kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the sort of like last question, I guess, for the eleven eleven book is just you know you guys have all these different really cool and unique facts about numbers and stuff, and uh, do you, do you have like a personal favorite? You know, one that stood out to you is the one that you were like, oh, that's pretty neat. I I like that one the best or one that's come up again and again, you know, since writing the book or doing the research. God, probably for me, the the Lincoln-Kennedy thing, but also the fact that I'm trying to find the name of it, that there's an actual disease like dyslexia um, for people that can't deal. Oh, it's called dyscalculia, a number disease. It's a learning disability involving the difficulty of comprehending mathematics. Now I know why I was so terrible at math in high school. <laughs> what about you, Larry? Uh, I don't know. That's that's a tough one. Oh, Larry. Come on, Larry. Yeah. Wake up. How was picking a favorite <laughs> a tough one? Well, because, you know, the politically correct answer would be that I love them all. Oh. <laughs> well, they're not your children. <laughs> yeah, they're your children. We had to leave why. out a lot of stuff, too. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Yeah. So you don't have a favorite, Larry? What about the one where you couldn't come up with your phone number? That always blew my mind. No, that really... No? no. 
Jeez, Larry, you're supposed to be pushing the book here, buddy. Yeah, come on, dude. Yeah, I, I can't, I, but I just can't think of anything that just really stood out for me that was like my favorite that I go around, you know. Well, what about the Kennedy Lincoln links? That that's it's, really that was interesting to me. Yeah. It was interesting. I wouldn't say it was the most fascinating <laughs> because obviously there could be, you know, some personal interpretation. But yeah, I, that was interesting. Really, the whole book is interesting. I mean, coming from a person that was not a numbers person, you know, this is the type of book. If I had not, if I had not been involved in the writing of this book, this would have been a book that I would have purchased. I mean, just seeing everything that's covered in the book. So, really, I mean, that, that's my honest answer: is that really everything? I mean, the the whole thing to me really brings home the idea that numbers don't have to be boring. That numbers don't have to be, you know. Something that you're scared to open the, the mail because you don't want to see a credit card bill. You know, there, there's more to numbers. <laughs> well, no, I'm still that. scared of that. <laughs> yeah, that's still a terrifying experience. I don't know. <laughs> so really, all of it. So I mean, that, I, I was being honest. That really, that was the whole book. Really, kind of sticks out as you know, kind of the uh, the breaking of my numbers virginity. I guess you would say. I think Larry brought up a good point too, in that he and I agreed that we would only write books that we ourselves would want to go out and buy and read. Yeah. Because otherwise it's no fun for us because it is grueling work and it's no fun for other people and it's not fun to talk about. So unless we're writing something that we feel excited and passionate about telling other people, you know, why bother? Absolutely, yeah. And and I think people can tell. I mean, really, honestly, if if you, if you write a book or you, you, whatever you do and you don't like it and you talk to someone about it, you could probably fake it for a little bit. But I think people can genuinely tell that we enjoyed writing this book. I think people can tell that this was something that fascinated both of us. I mean, we're, we're both completely honest in the fact that we didn't come up with the idea for the book and we didn't think that we were going to have any research material. But once we actually did it, you know, it, it really became something of, of its own and it really became something that I think Marie and I are both very proud of. Yeah, it was a real surprise that that it came out so good and it ended up being something that people are just you know, really embracing. Absolutely. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, I had the same sort of reaction. At first, I was like, numbers? I can't do this. (laughs) You can. You can. (laughs) Exactly. And then after I read the book, I was like, this book is really cool. It's really got an amazing amount of, like, neat little details in there that I'd never known about, that I I wish I'd known about earlier. So We're your numbers coach. Uh Uh-oh. But, I mean, it does. It gives people a whole new appreciation for something that they probably could not stand before right yeah so i mean that's almost the best recommendation you can you can give the book here is just that people should pick it up don't be afraid of the of the numbers aspect <laughs> of the book because you know it'll open your eyes to a whole different realm of the esoteric and the everyday that, that right. you never even thought about i have right. been told too by so many people that it has one of the most eye-popping covers of any book and and i think it's a great cover new page books did a great job it's very Eye-catching. Yeah, it is cool. Now, you guys said you got a you got a fat contract in your hands or something like that. <laughs> so, what what's going on with the future of Para Explorers? You got some stuff cooking in the pipeline, I see from your website. So, you know, give give people a little preview of what's up next for the uh, Flaxman Jones Power Alliance. Well, How we, are we, we take are definitely. Over the world, huh? Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. We are in in the process of trying to take over the world. We have a book out in August, The Resonance yeah. Key, Exploring the Links Between Vibration, Consciousness, and the Zero Point Grid. And that was a real 
exciting book for us to write because it sort yeah. of encompasses all the ideas that we talked about ever since we first met. And we just signed for a book called Been There, Done That, Exploring Deja Vu, Memory, and Anomalies of the Mind. And it is going to be quite a mind-blowing book. Yeah, that's no going to be I am, <laughs> I am so looking forward to that one, actually. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to research. So you guys haven't really started the process on that one yet? We started this week. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Didn't we, Larry? We start, and we started right before we talked to you. We actually did. We had our first little mini work session. Um, we just signed the contracts and turned them in. It was something that um, we put together pretty quickly and came together pretty quickly. So it will be out, from what we understand, spring, summer of 2010. So probably May, June, around that time frame. All right, sounds and who good. And what we'll do, I mean, we're both going to be speaking quite a bit, doing radio, writing articles. We've been doing a lot of articles for New Dawn Magazine, and so we put everything on the website that we're up to, and we'll always keep you posted, Tim. Absolutely. Well, I'm in the loop here on the Power Explorers anyway, so. You are. All right. Uh, now, before we wrap it up, I understand you guys are putting out a little call for action, I guess you'd say, or, you know, you're looking for some some information from folks out there who are listening who might have some experiences they want to share. So uh, what are you looking for? Well, basically, all guys between 20 and 30 who have perfect bodies. Oh, are no. Not <laughs> okay, never mind. Um, well, our next book is on anomalies of the mind, and that covers a real broad spectrum. But Larry and I always like to include personal stories and anecdotes and experiences that people have, even though – we try to think in scientific terms. We find it's important to also look at the experiential side of things. So we would like for people to email us, and they can do that through the Parexplorers website, with any interesting stories that might have about experiences with lucid dreaming, deja vu, uh, fugue states, sleep paralysis. What else, Larry? Pretty much anything that, that relates to a psychological change, I guess, in state. Altered states of consciousness. Yeah. What's a yeah. what's a fugue state? A fugue state. I've actually experienced one in my life. Absolutely terrifying is when you literally black out and come to perfectly functioning in the meantime. Uh, you know, miles from where you were supposed to be. Uh, you lose time. It's like a state of missing time. Uh, your brain just sort of shuts off, but yet you're still able to function, drive, move around, whatever. Weird. Yeah, those are really they're, freaky. They're very similar to missing time, but usually in fugue states, there is absolutely no shred of memory of what happened during the blackout. Whereas in missing time, you'll have people say that they think they, you know, remember something. Usually having to do with aliens, but there's a, there's a little bit of a difference between the two. I have that experience a lot with coworkers at work. It seems like I'll say something and then. You know, they, they don't seem to remember what I say. <laughs> no, Larry, that's just you. <laughs> oh, burned, Larry. Oh, I'm yeah, just that, teasing. That, that oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I can't believe we've gone two hours here and uh, just an amazing conversation here. A lot of laughs. It felt like, you know, I, I'm starting to wonder if people are even listening here because <laughs> it's just been such a such a loose, <laughs> fun conversation between friends that I really enjoyed. And uh, we covered a lot of stuff here in the 11.11 book, I hope, and I hope people really dug it and check out the book. As I said, it is really cool. Uh, I, was, I was weary of it at first because of the whole number element, but the more I read it, and the further I got into it, I was getting more and more into it and more and more amazed by the information you guys uncovered. And i got to tip my hat to you, not just because 
you know, you did a great job on the book, but that you're tackling really nebulous, difficult to research, difficult to uh, investigate subjects. This 11-11 thing and all, and, you know, synchronicities and, and coincidences and now deja vu and in, these, in this fugu state or whatever you called it. And <laughs> we're very bold. Fugu is a poisonous sushi fish. I think. I think it is. Yeah. I think the fugu is the poisonous sushi fish. Well, maybe that's yeah. what causes the fugue states. Wow. <laughs> wow. I want to credit in the book if we cover that. I don't remember eating any poisonous sushi that night, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had a lot of those states myself, but those were usually brought on by a lot of alcohol. So. There you go. <laughs> but as I said, you know, I, I love talking to you guys. It's been too long since you've been on the show, and, and you'll definitely be back for season five. I know that oh, for absolutely. sure. Oh, absolutely. Of course we will. And I'm really excited about the Para Explorers Alliance. You guys, uh, you know, two of my favorite people teaming up, forming a, a tremendous alliance, and now putting out these daring books. As I said, you know, you guys could just sit on your laurels and put out UFO and Bigfoot books all day. And nah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, hats off to the Para Explorers. The book is 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon, The Meaning Behind Mysterious Signs, Sequences, and Synchronicities, the perfect summertime reading book. Bring it to the beach, my friends, and learn a little bit about the numbers you see every day. And also, you know, like I said earlier, win some bar bets with people. There's tons of these <laughs> little facts in here. You can just whoop ass at, in the bar. You won't even have to pay to drink. You'll just be like, you know, you'll be winning free drinks left and right all night. Thanks to the 1111 Time Prompt Phenomenon book. I've, I've been laughing my ass off here all night, and Marie has to, and Larry has to. So it's been it's been a great evening, and I hope... The folks listening at home have enjoyed it as much as I have. Marie, again, thank you for coming on the show. Larry, thanks for coming back on the show. I look forward to having you both back on again as soon as we can do it again. Absolutely. You got it. Absolutely, sure. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman for coming back on the show. I love talking to them. Already looking forward to reconnecting with them in Season 5. Wish them the best of luck in their future endeavors. They've got so much stuff going on. To find out more about what's coming down the pike from them, you can check out the website paraexplorers.com. Pretty simple, all one word, paraexplorers.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got two different emails here, so let's just get on with the business at hand. The first one comes from Brad in Port Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Here's what Brad has to say. Great show on or off topic. I hate baseball except for your yearly baseball special. This last special was especially on topic with the Masonic connection. It was one of the best. I also liked Adam Davies. Would suggest you look into having L.A. Marzulli on. I think it would be enlightening for you as well as for him. Keep up the good work. Brad in Port Allegheny, Pennsylvania. There you go. That's from Brad, no doubt, responding to last week's anti-baseball special email. I always love it when folks come through to defend my wacky ideas. And Brad raises a great point here. I really kind of undersold the Lauren Coleman portion of this year's baseball special. I mean, that thing was loaded with esoteric material talking about the Masonic connection to baseball. So, you know, it was kind of on topic within the esoteric realm. At least that segment was. And I want to thank Brad for reminding me about that. I quite enjoyed Adam Davies, too. He's a great guy. I'm looking forward to getting back in touch with him this summer and see what he's been up to. And I will certainly look into L.A. Marzulli, although I can't make any promises. You know how that is, folks. 
trying to track these people down and do the research on them is quite time consuming. In addition to that, I know that one of the founding fathers of BOA, Joe V, has a, some kind of personal vendetta against L.A. Marzulli. I never quite understood exactly why, but if you read his columns at BOA, he's got a couple anti-Marzulli pieces on the site. So, I don't know, maybe I will interview L.A. Marzulli just to make Joe V flip his wig, and uh, that alone would be worth doing the interview. But I'll put L.A. Marzulli on the list for people to check out here over the course of the summer as we plan for Season 5. Once again, thanks, Brad, for defending the baseball special. I appreciate it. I know a lot of folks do tune into the baseball special, even though they're not big baseball fans. Just to hear all the different esoteric researchers take a break from talking shop and to talk a little pop culture type stuff for a change. The next email comes from Team IQXS. And uh, you'll learn a little bit more about them in a moment. Here's what they have to say. Welcome to Twitter, Mr. Banal. I had been hoping to see you join. Totally love your program. Some of the crew here at IQXS think you have a chuckle to die for. They wait until you do all the serious stuff with your voice and then give a whooping holler when you laugh or chuckle. Anyway, your show rocks. Been a lurker from the beginning. You can check out my Twitter service if you like and see that I have always promoted you to my fellow UFO nuts. Continued success, Team IQXS. So there you go. That was from Team IQXS. They are a big force in the Twitter world. Their feed URL is twitter.com slash IQXS. Definitely want to check them out. A running stream of great UFO news coming at you via the IQXS team. They are a part of this growing group of folks on Twitter that I'm becoming great friends with. I love the folks on Twitter and have been enjoying the Twitter service for the last month or so since we joined up. Let me plug the BOA Twitter feed, twitter.com slash Benal. Pretty simple, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That's where you'll find me on Twitter. We got links all over BOA for that if you want to check it out. Lots of behind-the-scenes type stuff going on there and personal anecdotes and foolishness from me uh, that I post throughout the day on the Twitter feed give you a little chance to peek behind the curtain of BOA HQ. I also want to thank Team IQXS for the amusing props for my chuckle. Sometimes I do wonder maybe that I laugh too much in the show, and I've kind of noticed lately over the last few weeks that I've been laughing more and more during the show. I'm not sure what's going on with that. I guess it just means I'm having a great time doing the program. But I do sometimes worry that I laugh too much during the show, so it's always great to hear from folks who are in favor of the laugh. As we kind of got across here during this week's episode, you know... I want to have a good time. The paranormal world doesn't have to be super serious and stringent. You know, you can have a good time. You can have some laughs. And that's what we do here on the program. And I'm glad that the listeners, at least at Team IQXS, are enjoying it. So anyway, there you go. Thanks for writing in, Team IQXS. Check them out on Twitter, twitter.com slash IQXS. Those are the emails, slowly but surely making our way through the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. If you've written to me and I haven't written back, just shoot me another email. Let me know what's going on. Poke me with a stick. I don't care. It's cool. I will get back to as many people as possible. And sometimes some of those emails do slip through the cracks. And I don't want anyone to feel neglected. So shoot me another email. Say, hey, Benal, I wrote to you back in late April, you son of a bitch. And you never wrote me back. What's going on? And I'll uh, dig through my mailbag and, and get back to you right away. I promise. 
And if you want to have your email featured here at the end of the program, like Brad and the folks at Team IQXS, that's pretty simple. You just write to me at boaaudio at hotmail.com or go to Banal of America and click the contact button. That's pretty easy and simple to find. It's all over the website, much like the Twitter link. Or join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com. Lots of great folks joining up week after week and becoming a part of our ongoing conversations at the official BOA forum. You can find that, of course, at the URL, theusofe.com. All one word, kind of a mishmash of letters, but you should be able to find it. And there are, of course, links to that all over Banal of America as well. So there's links everywhere. It's like a crazy spider web of different links. So you should be able to get a hold of me or get a hold of the forum or get a hold of the Twitter feed or just get a hold of yourself at the Banal of America website. So check all that stuff out there. And uh, shoot me an email with your questions, comments, guest suggestions, thoughtful criticisms. I can take it. Don't worry about it, folks. Just don't be a rude jerk about things. And I'll be uh, happy to listen to your thoughts on the program. And if the email is short and pithy or particularly spicy, we'll try and work it in here at the end of the program on BOA Audio Listener Feedback. You know what segment comes next. It is, of course, the thanks portion of the show. Let's roll through the amazing BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Lasha Seniuk, and A.M. Murphy. They are amazing. They are contributing great columns at Banal of America that you're going to want to go check out as soon as you're done listening to this. So let me give you some thumbnail looks at what's been posted at BOA recently. Today we posted Leslie's Gray Matters titled Dulce, Nothing is New, talking about how, you know, that Dulce underground base thing's been going on for a while, but going on even longer than that has just been strange stuff going on at Dulce that often gets overlooked when people hear Alien Base and immediately dismiss Dulce as a place where strange things can happen. Au contraire, mon frère, there are strange things going on at Dulce all the time and have been for a very, very long time, well before the Alien Base thing even came along. Leslie explores that whole issue in Grey Matters. That's at BOA. Always a keen observer of the world, Rochelle Hawks has her bi-weekly column, Medusa's Ladder, up at BOA. We posted that one on Friday titled Occult Exchanges, Manja, Lolita Fashion, and The Bomb. Just a mind-blowing piece all about this weird Lolita Fashion subculture of Japan and Rochelle trying to figure out what this strange trend is all about. Absolutely fascinating piece. You definitely want to check that one out at Banal of America. Occult Exchanges, Manja, Lolita Fashion, and The Bomb. And last Wednesday we posted A.M. Murphy's third column at BOA, everything you always wanted to know about channeling, but were afraid to ask. A.M. Murphy is an accomplished and professional tarot card reader. I know her personally. I've hung out with her and her husband several times already now. They are great folks, and A.M. is a very thoughtful researcher of the esoteric, and she's going to be delving into channelers over the next few weeks at Benal of America and sort of giving the whole realm of channeling a second look. Much like we were saying here with the Dulce situation, a lot of people sort of write off channeling from the get-go. You know, I don't blame them, and as AM says in her piece, it's easy to be leery of channelers. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and take a second look here at channeling, and that's what AM Murphy does in her piece. 
everything you always want to know about channeling, but we're afraid to ask. That's at BOA as well. As we say week in and week out, if you're only listening to Banal of America audio and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. Banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, of America.com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. It's almost the end of Season 4. We've got about five episodes coming at you. As we wrap up the fourth season of Banal of America, I'm going to make a hard hard push for donations when we close out season four but let me just point out something that i neglected to mention last week and that is in last week's episode you heard a two and a half hour phone call to the country of sweden folks that shit costs money and that money comes out of my pocket unless we get great donations from boa audio listeners who want to help us out Now, we've been saying it since episode one of season four. There is a financial crisis going on throughout the world. I don't want folks who can't afford it to make donations and then regret it because they can't feed their kids. That's just crazy talk. So hold on to your money. Don't make donations if you're just getting by. But for the folks who are doing all right, and I know you're out there, those folks hopefully have a little bit of disposable income and they can make a donation to Banal of America to help us out in the name of themselves and all the great listeners who right now just can't make donations. So how do you do all that? Simple, you go to Banal of America, you click the PayPal button, and you make a donation. The folks at PayPal will walk you through the whole process. And as we say here every week, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards BOA and BOA Audio and helping to keep the entire franchise up and running and freely available for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, to be honest with you folks, I am absolutely beside myself with excitement over what we're going to be rolling out to you over the next three weeks. Earlier in the season, we had the Anne Druffle miniseries, a three-episode set, if you will, talking all about the Tahunga Canyon contacts and Firestorm Dr. James E. McDonald's Fight for UFO Science. We're going back to the three-episode arc style. Instead of a miniseries, though, we're calling it a trilogy, and that'll make perfect sense as I describe what we have on tap for you. Next week is the first installment of what we're calling the Rux Trilogy. In his first interview since the year 2000, Bruce Rux, author of the mind-blowing Hollywood vs. the Aliens, joins BOA Audio for an extended conversation, a three-episode arc that totals nearly six hours of material. He has smashed the longest BOA audio interview record, has Bruce Rux, with this amazing over-six-hour interview. I'm going to have a lot more, of course, to say about that next week when we do the intro to the show, but let me sort of preview here the three-part Bruce Rux trilogy that starts next week. Coming at you next week is Volume 1, which we're calling also The Prelude. We're going to cover Bruce's thesis that the government has been using films and television shows in a concerted effort to shape the public's understanding and feelings on the UFO phenomenon. We're going to cover the basic tenets, which Bruce believes to be at work within the UFO phenomenon, including E.T. Grays as robots, ancient astronauts, mind control used in abductions, and a Mars connection. We'll then move into the beginning of what Bruce sees as an education program at work by the government with the 1938 Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, the few thoughtful UFO-related films of the early 1950s, the effect of the Robertson panel 
on the entertainment industry's portrayal of UFOs, the wave of silly UFO films from the mid to late 1950s, and the change towards thoughtful TV programming in the early 1960s. That's just part one. It's about two hours. It's jam-packed with material. Then in two weeks, we're going to have volume two, also known as The Program. This is going to be posted the week of July 6th, and we're going to continue the timeline that we're going to leave off at at the end of volume one. In part two, we're going to talk about Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry and the Nine, The X-Files, Doctor Who, the Quatermass Trilogy, the James Bond films, and a ton of other sci-fi UFO films as well as how these entertainment offerings fit into the UFO education program that Bruce sees at work throughout the last few decades. We're also going to discuss how the Jimmy Carter presidency ushered in a whole new era of pro-UFO films, and the transition to Reagan as president, and how his administration changed the tenor of UFOs and aliens in films and TV shows. And then, if that's not enough, we're going to have the concluding installment, Volume 3, also titled The Postscript, to be posted the week of July 13th at BOA. That's going to wrap up this massive interview with first discussion of the George Bush and Bill Clinton years and how they relate to the overall theme of this conversation, the education program at work regarding UFOs. We're going to culminate all that in the publication of Bruce's book in 1997. That's when Hollywood vs. the Aliens came out, believe it or not, over 12 years ago. From there, we're going to get some perspective on how things have shaped up since the book came out, what Bruce thinks of a variety of films and TV shows from 97 to 09, and where he sees things headed into the future. We're also going to find out a little bit more about where Bruce has been these last nine years and what he may be working on for the future. Now, all that stuff I just told you, that's scratching at the surface. As I said, six hours of material, just an amazing motherload of UFO stuff from Bruce Rocks. Bruce and I hit it off. I'm going to talk more about just how amazing and cool Bruce Rocks is at the beginning of the program next week. You don't need to hear me say all this twice. So I'm just going to say tune in next week. Stop by BOA towards the end of the week. I'll have a much more thorough preview of the Rocks trilogy there. Suffice it to say, this is one of the signature interviews for BOA Audio Season 4. We are welcoming an amazing researcher and a very cool guy who has never appeared on a podcast before and hasn't done an interview in nearly a decade. It's Bruce Rux, and you're only going to hear him on BOA Audio. Tune in next week for the festivities, the start of the Rux trilogy. I'm telling you folks, mind-blowing material from Bruce Rux. You're definitely going to want to tune in for this one and dig into the Rocks trilogy. It's going to be amazing. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Thanks, of course, to Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman for coming back on the show. Love talking to them, as always. And, of course, thank you to the amazing BOA listeners. You guys are the best. Been getting some just awesome feedback from so many different people from all around the world, as usual. And I just can't thank you enough for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.